0: In this episode, we speak with Sarah Jones-Simmer, the CEO of Found, a company with a mission to make evidence-based, sustainable weight care accessible for all. Prior to joining Found in 2021, Sarah was the COO of Bumble, where she was responsible for core strategy, international growth, marketing initiatives, and business operations, as well as the expansion of Bumble's rapidly growing team. She started her career analyzing equities and market conditions at a Los Angeles-based hedge fund with $5 billion in assets under management. Found has raised over $130 million and is backed by Westcap, Google Ventures, Atomic, and other notable investors. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the Managing Partner of GrowthCap and the Executive Chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a delight to chat with you today. Yeah, it's so nice to
1: be here, RJ. Thanks for asking me.
0: So where I'd like to kick off is, Your total addressable market. It sounds like a strange place to kick off, but the reason why I want to start there is because, man, I think everyone is trying to lose weight. I think it's like the TAM is probably like everyone, but Found, the company you lead, is probably more catered to a certain segment of the market or a certain type of potential customer that's trying to lose weight and maybe has struggled. So maybe we can start there and just tell us a little bit about Found and how it's different.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. I believe deeply that every good business is a combination of meaningful TAM, right product market fit, and right team. So it's the perfect place to get started. I think you're right. Obesity is probably the biggest problem facing public health today. 70% of Americans struggle with overweight and obesity, and yet only 1% of docs in this country are trained in obesity medicine. Most PCPs spend a couple hours of medical school focused on things like nutrition and obesity management. So we've got a really big supply-demand challenge. And I think for so long, the only tools that we felt that like we had to treat obesity were behavior change, largely diet and exercise. And people were made to feel like if they didn't have the willpower to diet and exercise, then they didn't deserve a body that they loved. And the science shows us that that's wrong. And I think one of the things that's interesting about the moment we're having, where Ozembeg, Wigobi, Munjaro are in the headlines every day, is that as a society, we are really waking up to the fact that obesity is also driven by biology, by factors that are outside of a person's control, and that those factors have significant influence on the behavior change that's even possible. And that's something we've been preaching at Found for years now. The company went live in December of 2020. I joined as CEO about two years ago now, and we've really felt like we needed this much more comprehensive approach to treating obesity, where the clinician has a seat at the table, where medication is prescribed if clinically appropriate, and that that medication is combined with behavior change. Things like movement and nutrition, and also sleep and stress management and hydration, all of these other factors that really do contribute to someone's weight and long-term health. And it's critical to address weight because it sits upstream of so many of the other life-altering conditions that we see, whether that's diabetes, hypertension, cancer, which is a big part of my own personal journey, And so when the opportunity came to Lead Found, I really felt so deeply connected to it in terms of the size of the addressable market, which I said is like 70-ish percent of the U.S. and unfortunately growing. And because I feel like we're overdue for innovation in both the care delivery by giving the clinician a seat at the table and the narrative, which is really broken in this country. And I think this emphasis on biology and medication, when used appropriately, helps us really crack that stigma.
0: There's no shortage of content out there about how to lose weight. And, and it is always focused on diet and exercise. And you could watch or listen to or, and read volumes of information. But perhaps what you're getting to is you could do everything that's being suggested to you, but still not get there in terms of your weight target or weight loss goals because you're missing these elements of like understanding your biology and having the appropriate medication. Are there some more commonplace ways that people are generally able to fix things that you're able to prescribe?
1: That's a really good question. This is a bit of an oversimplified metaphor, but asking someone who struggles with obesity to diet and exercise is the equivalent of asking someone with major depression to meditate. It's just not going to be sufficient if you don't address underlying biology. So a common example is, someone with uncontrolled cravings, if their brain is continually thinking about when am I next going to eat? What can I eat next? The pleasures under their brain light up when they think about food. If you can control that brain hunger, and there's a variety of tools that we can use to treat that, then suddenly mindful eating becomes accessible. So it doesn't take away the need to do things like focus on a balanced plate and get more protein and eat whole foods where possible, But suddenly, if we can control the cravings, that behavior change becomes easier. You're not fighting against your own biology. And I think we've heard stories where folks feel like they get hours of their life back every day that used to be consumed by thinking about food or resisting their own cravings that now can be applied in other very productive ways. And I think that's a thing to recognize about obesity and why it really is a population health issue it lives upstream of those other very expensive things like diabetes, which are costing Americans through taxpayer dollars, through ER visits, millions if not billions of dollars a year. So there are real hard and soft costs associated with obesity. And there's this opportunity to help folks who are struggling with this get access to better tools that give them more control in their lives and enable them to find joy in their body. And some of the most inspiring stories we get are from folks that you know, it's not really just about the number on the scale, but it's now about the things that they can do, keep up with their kids on the playground or travel freely and not have to ask for a seatbelt expander or buy a second seat. They can go out and do the things that they love. And that's where the whole name for the business comes from, because it's actually not about the pounds you've lost. It's about the life you've found. And I think that comes back to this idea of starting from a place of self-acceptance, enabling people to feel great about who they are, where they are, but equipping them with the tools to take control of their weight and their health. And I think medication and addressing biology wasn't a part of the toolkit historically. Mm -hmm. And we've seen obesity medicine experts like our chief medical officer, Dr. Rekha Kumar, who practiced at Cornell for decades. We've seen in isolation places like academic weight management centers be able to deliver that comprehensive and integrated care but they couldn't scale to meet the demand here. And I think that's where technology represents a great opportunity to take the mastery of the obesity medicine science, someone like Dr. Kumar has, and create tools and hire and equip and train clinicians who can have those same superpowers, but treat a much broader set of patients. We've now served more than 200,000 people, which makes us the largest medically assisted weight loss clinic in the country. And that data continues to reinforce our ability to serve patients even better because we're learning from those outcomes. We're getting to clinically significant levels. We can prescribe more precisely, both in terms of medication and behavior change as a result. And that's the flywheel for the business, if you will, that helps us get better and better at delivering care.
0: And now the way you've scaled is very impressive. You've been able to do it quickly, what was your approach? Obviously, it must have been somewhat seamless. You thought a lot about how to bring in the right type of potential patients or customers or members. So how was it that you were able to scale so quickly?
1: Gosh, it's a really interesting moment to reflect on the balance of growth and profitability, given where we are in the macro environment. I also think there's an imperative in healthcare that you can only grow at the speed of trust. And so it shouldn't be actually about customer acquisition at all costs. It should be about efficacy and outcomes first and foremost. If we build a product that helps people get to the health outcomes that they want, then we've been successful. And only then should we scale that, right? And Mm -hmm. so last year in 2022, we had an internal North Star of efficacy. Then we started every all hands by focusing on it. We really look at the metrics around outcomes and we believe that has to be the foundation of all growth. And by the way, if the program works, people will tell their friends about it. This is a category that is driven by success stories. And by the way, that reminds me of dating. As you know, I came from Bumble to Found, and it's the same thing. If you deliver a great experience for folks, if you help them get the outcome that they want to, even if they leave the platform in that case, like some of these tools are built for good churn. Even if they leave the platform, more people will come on their way out. But the only way you get that is if you drive to a good outcome for folks. And in the case of Found, That outcome is helping people find joy in their body and take control of their weight and their health. If we can deliver on that, then growth can happen. So I do believe that that is a critical piece of how you build a growth engine. I think the thing that we're increasingly focused on now is making sure that we continue to hero clinical excellence, clinical integrity, responsible prescribing. We make sure that every member who comes through our door does a detailed intake process that helps us get an understanding of their root cause of obesity. We use that to equip our clinicians to prescribe appropriately. So we can use things like Ozempic and Wegovi if that's truly the best and most effective drug for that individual. And in cases where it's not the clinically appropriate choice or there isn't insurance coverage or there's a shortage of one of those medications, we have a wide toolkit of other medical interventions, many of which are generics that can help us serve those members, even in the absence of being able to acquire a GLP-1. And I think that's what gives me a moment for reflection, given the time that we're in currently, where there is just so much conversation around GLP-1, Ozempic, with Govi, even things like Burberry now, which is making headlines for being nature's Ozempic. you know, which it isn't, is we shouldn't just focus on the medication. At the end of the day, high quality longitudinal care should be about shared decision-making between the member and their clinician. And that's it. It shouldn't be about a marketing campaign. It shouldn't be about how many clicks can we get by posting about Ozempic. It should be how do we get this person on the right care plan for them? And how do we hero evidence and science? And to your earlier question about like, we've had a diet culture in this country for generations and it's been very fad-driven. And I think these new class of medications are incredible miracle drugs that are truly changing lives. Let's prescribe responsibly so we don't turn this into another fad, that this can really be a lasting set of tools that are used to deliver high quality clinical care.
0: I'd like to touch on your experience at Bumble, but before I do that, I think it's super cool that you came from a non-traditional background, meaning it it looks like you were a performance arts major. And so I think it'd be fascinating for folks to hear about how you made your way to tech executive.
1: You're right. It's a pretty non-traditional path. I was a flute performance major. I went to a conservatory. That was a great experience. I do feel like music teaches discipline when you're practicing five to seven hours a day. It also teaches creativity, it teaches collaboration, you're working within an orchestra context and you're all making something together that doesn't work on its own. So while I don't play flute that frequently anymore, so much of the experience that I had there really translated. I ended up going from flute performance degree to AmeriCorps, which is like a domestic version of the Peace Corps so that I could figure out what to do with my life other than play in an orchestra. And I was working on tax assistance for low income families there. That really clued me into the incredible importance of financial literacy for myself, for the general population. And I managed to parlay that into an opportunity at a hedge fund, which I really sincerely appreciate my mentor who took a risk on me and hired me for a role at a hedge fund with a very non-traditional background. I think I had like fp for dummies and was trying to learn how to read financial statements in the evenings as I was taking on that job but so much of what we were doing there was really understanding macroeconomic conditions. I do also have a master's degree in public policy. So I was doing a lot of Washington analysis and figuring out what's happening in DC and the influence that's gonna have on the market. And this was in 2007, 2008. And so you could argue that like Washington and Wall Street were one in the same, given TARP and TELF and the kind of alphabet soup of programs that happened at that time. I think investing is amazing foundational work for any kind of executive career later. You're certainly building this ability to match patterns, to identify what a good management team looks like, to identify the levers that you should be able to pull as you walk down P&L and think about where growth can come from, from this business. And so I feel really grateful for that. And I think that created the foundation that enabled me to then go into consulting and then make the switch to in-house work through a series of high growth, early stage companies. One of which, as you said, is Bumble, and obviously another of which is now found
0: and so presumably after your consulting segment you then linked up with bumble is that how it happened
1: there was actually one other stop in between and it was at an early stage startup also in the consumer end of things focus on sustainable beauty i felt like i got to learn under a really amazing entrepreneur he had been head of global digital at ralph Lauren prior to that president at ticketmaster prior to that head of A at iac and so in many ways, it was a crash course for me in operating. And I was his first employee outside of himself as founder. And so one day you're figuring out how to set up payroll. The next day you're setting up the supply chain. The next day you're cleaning the kitchen. You're just doing everything. And I feel like I learned a ton from that experience. After two years of that is when I joined Bumble. I had a really interesting inflection point for that company. It was 2017. It's about 30 people in a two-bedroom apartment. And a lot of my job was to come in and take that experience from consulting, from startup life, from investing, and figure out how to build the infrastructure for scale for that business without crushing the magic that Whitney and the early team had created. She's one of the most incredible visionary entrepreneurs I've ever encountered. And I felt like I, because of those past series of experiences, could help her create that infrastructure, that scaffolding for scale behind the scenes while she really continued to pioneer that vision for the company.
0: That's fantastic. And before we hopped on and started recording here, we were talking about your interactions and, I guess, partnership with Blackstone, which was a key investor for Bumble, which then influenced how you crafted your investor set for Found. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I, gosh, I was so lucky to get to work with folks like John Korngold, who I know you've had on the show, Sachin Babishi, Vishal Amin, Kelly Morell. Martin Brand, there's so many to mention. We had actually never raised outside capital at Bumble. Bumble has a really interesting history through a partnership with an early founding partner who made that initial investment. And so the first time we raised outside capital was that $3 billion valuation round with Blackstone. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to partner with them. I think it reminded me in many ways of my early days of value investing and that hedge fund role I told you about. I just felt like they were incredibly thoughtful partners who knew how to operate. Many of them had sat in operator seats, as well as being great investors and working together to build a board, to pursue the IPO process, to effectuate the 100-day value creation plan was a highlight of my career. I really deeply enjoyed that. And so when it came time to raise Found Series B, which we did in December of 2021, I had that kind of Blackstone pattern to match against. And when I met LT, Lauren Stosey, who is the founder of WestCap, it really reminded me of that Blackstone DNA. He had been the CFO of Blackstone. He'd also been the CFO at Airbnb. So he had this incredible combination of operating in a high growth environment, plus the financial excellence that is inherent in everything that Blackstone does. And he felt like the right partner to lead the round for us. And I've been so impressed with the WestCap team and just the diversity of their experience They have what they call a growth equity operating system. And they really think about not just bringing investment prowess to the table, but they have an in-house creative studio. They have uh, an amazing talent and compensation practice. We've really been able to leverage all pieces of their ecosystem. And that's been transformational for a company like us that at a Series B stage, maybe typically doesn't have access to those sorts of things. And so it's been exciting to be on the journey with Westcap. I feel like we're so lucky to have many amazing investors on our cap table, and I could tell you incredible stories about each of them, but the Blackstone and LT connection is a special one for me.
0: We're coming up on time here. I'd like to end with a couple questions. One is, can you tell us about someone who has had a profound influence on you? It could be either personal or professional or, or other area of your life.
1: Ah. Oh. That is such a hard question because I feel like we're all the amalgamation of so many different people who have influenced us in special ways. As cliche as it may sound, I think it's my dad. He's gone now. He's been gone for six years. He passed due to ALS. He does not have a college degree. He started his career as a janitor at a pharmaceutical company and worked his way up through a lot of hard work into a position in pharma, working on engineering equipment that could be used to create the time-release coating on drugs. And it's so interesting for me to reflect on that now as I work so closely with pharma in my current role at Found. And I was just always inspired by the way that he stood up to adversity in his own career, the way that he figured things out, and the kindness that he showed to other people. His favorite place to be was on the manufacturing floor, teaching people how to use these machines, collaborating with others who are in janitorial roles, like where he started his career. And I think that when I think about my own growth and professional development, I only hope that I can hold myself to that high standard.
0: That's incredible. Last question, can you tell us about a cause or charity or other endeavor that you feel passionate about?
1: Yeah, I feel very passionate about the work that we're doing in obesity. And we actually just yesterday announced a partnership with Instacart and the Rio Grande Valley Food Bank to help food access in that community. McAllen, Texas has the highest rate of adults suffering with obesity. And while we're in this moment where there are incredible tools like the GLP ones we were just talking about, that doesn't discount the role that access to nutritious food plays in someone having access to a long, healthy, full life. And so I really believe that The answer is gonna continue to be coordination between things like access to nutritious food, access to safe places to be outside and move, as well as continued investment and innovation in biological and pharmacotherapy
0: solutions.
1: So I'm really passionate about closing the food access gap and would encourage any listeners to take a look at the partnership we just announced.
0: Excellent, well, Sarah, I wanna thank you again for taking the time to chat with us today. I know our audience will find this very insightful.
1: Yeah, thank you, RJ, great to be with you.